You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. TechNest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Hey, welcome back. We've got another exciting interview for you today. I'm sitting with Jeff Gopstein. He's founder of a company called Yield Easy out of Philadelphia. Shout out to Philly. Love hearing about some prop tech coming out of Philly. Jeff got started as actually as a broker, working and selling multifamily deals. And he found himself way into this area where, hey, you know, what if we could help others buy these small multifamily deals? We're talking the two to 20 unit size deals, a $20 billion year segment and growing, according to Yield Easy. And the, the goal is really simple, is to take a process that's not usually been enjoyable. And, you know, this includes maybe brokers who aren't fit for promoting and marketing these deals, sourcing property management, and even securing the debt to purchase properties. And then creating a channel for all that to come together in a way that allows the mom and pop investors of these assets be able to purchase and close on deals better. Um, I think it's admirable that we're still pursuing how can we make investing a more seamless and enjoyable experience, get the data to be a little clearer, and hopefully then it still provides a little upside for everyone to make a little bit along the way. Why don't we go ahead and jump in to hear what Jeff has got to say about this. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nate. Appreciate you having me on. I got uh, big shoes to fill. You got some uh, special guests that I'm always watching come on the show, so I feel honored to be here today. Yeah, but you know, we got to represent for the East Coast, uh, letting everybody know Philly is in the building. And Absolutely. that's that's how we do. For those of you who don't know, I live in South Dakota, but originally from Philly Burbs. And Jeff, our guest today, also, uh, well, really closer to uh, actual true proper Philly. So as we always do, as the tradition is, Jeff, go ahead, introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Jeff Gopstein. I am from Philadelphia proper, like you said, first generation immigrant. Uh, Grew up in Bucks County, moved to Center City, Philadelphia for school, spent the next uh, 10 to 11 years there, went to Drexel, Uh, had a kind of a concentration, untraditional college career. I ran a food truck. I was buying and selling old technology phones and laptops to pay my tuition. Always kind of wanted to be entrepreneurial. Never really had kind of a career site or path that I was going down other than quote unquote business. Um, Had a few kind of interesting internships in private equity and wealth management, but didn't have the attention span nor the desire to stare at a spreadsheet all day. I got interested in real estate by accident because somebody told me to go get my real estate license. And I um, did a few rentals and sales from friends of my parents who felt bad for me because I had no transactions. So that was my only exposure to real estate coming into this world. I then got introduced to a real estate private equity fund uh, based here in Philadelphia. They're um, developers. They mostly do ground up apartments, class A apartment buildings. And that's really kind of where the 
multifamily aspect of my career came in, the really seeing real estate as an asset class, kind of that's where it all started. I spent the next two years there, um, you know, acquiring land, entitling it, uh, dealing with investor relations, going to zoning hearing board meetings, uh, you know, really kind of getting every aspect of, of, of real estate. And it was interesting because uh, that's where I met my, my co-founder. He kind of went more the traditional prop tech route afterwards. And I kind of spent the next five, seven years in really just institutional multifamily apartment acquisitions. And I was always kind of drawn to the people who were buying single family homes. And 20 years later, they have this big portfolio of property. And it was just this overwhelming majority of real estate was either syndicated or owned by hedge funds or private equity shops. And I just kept coming back to the fact that there are people who do this on a non-institutional level. And that's kind of what I was striving for. So after I kind of did all the institutional real estate stuff, I started buying my own single family homes, did uh, that all the way up through COVID. And uh, there was a lot of pain there just because the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, as a lot of people know when it comes to dealing with single family homes. And uh, I was talking to my you know co-founder and we realized that we have 15 years of apartment experience. Why don't we go try to buy a duplex or a triplex or a five unit deal? Um, and this really is really where uh, Yield Easy, uh, my company was born is we saw how behind that process was, felt 30 years behind. There was no information. Uh, there was no uh, liquidity. There was no um, real intermediary of exchange in this kind of two to 20 unit small apartment building world. And the light bulb went off. It was a, it's a $60 billion a year transaction market um, we, we were able to see that 80% of mom and pop, um, owners, uh, or excuse me, 80% of this asset class is owned by mom and pop, which is where a lot of this friction and fragmentation came in. And we launched the, the, the business and we really kind of, our goal was to be kind of the, I don't want to say one-stop shop, but really kind of an end to end platform for buying, selling uh, small multifamily property and really creating kind of a robust channel partner network for title financing, property management, diligence, really kind of being that be all end all for, you know, exposing everyday investors to this asset class directly. So sorry for the long winded response, but uh, no, I appreciate it. You kicked off with a lot of things in there. Uh, and, and we're going to get into a lot of that you mentioned. Good on you for having some friends and family that gave you a few transactions. Uh, all of mine just said best wishes, and that was about all they gave me uh, getting started in my real estate career. Uh, that, we got to start with probably the most important thing first, a little bit of a side topic. Best place to get a cheesesteak in Philly? So it's Steve's Prince of Steaks, and there is no argument there. Oh, you're not even a Jim's guy. No, no, no. To- that's Most Philly people will tell you that that is a, that is a tourist spot. Um, same with Pat's, same with Gino's. Well, Pat's uh, and Gino's, yeah. Jim's is, uh, I, I'd, I'd ping it at a 6.2, but Steve's really is at, like... At a, at a 10? Yes. Okay, all right. And, and then, okay, now this is the question that everyone asks, and I think that there's a range of, of answers, and then we're going to get right to real estate. What makes a Philly a Philly? And it can be more than one thing. You mean from the standpoint of what makes a person from Philadelphia a Philly person? No, what makes a Philly cheesesteak a Philly oh, cheesesteak? Oh, 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 oh. Oh, it's the bread. That's right. Nobody knows about that bread. <laughs> yeah, no. Yes, there's, there's... it should be thin sliced beef, and it could be chuck. It can be ribeye. You can do provolone. You can do whiz. That's fine. You can do the cheese out of a can that's cut with water and sitting on the stove top and ladled on top. And if you want onions and peppers, that's fine. But it's the bread. The bread. Amorosa bread. Yeah, it's 
Yep, and if it's if it's got, it's got seeds on it, bonus points for that. But yeah, it, it comes down to the, the bread. There it is. All right, so now that we have the truth on that, let's get moving forward here. You mentioned a lot of points of friction and challenges right off the bat here. Um, so let's get to the heart of it. What is YieldEasy solving for? Uh, yeah, so YieldEasy really is solving for the unaccessibility of a $60 billion market. You have this insatiable thirst that we've seen over the last five years of consumer interest in real estate, be it from lawyers, doctors, tech executives, um, people that have the capital, uh, people that I like to call the graduates of the bigger pockets, you know, school of thought. Um, but there really is no accessibility. And where there is accessibility, there's a huge barrier of entry um, in terms of all the other kind of verticals that go into buying a real estate deal. People get hung up on the diligence part. People don't know how to order an inspection. Um, people don't know how to find the right property manager, right? Mm. And so what, what YieldEasy is solving for is kind of that end-to-end uh, solution for people that are capitalized, have, have kind of the budget to buy real estate, and really kind of be that tech-enabled handholder um, of replacing. I don't want to say replacing. That's the wrong word because we, we enable brokers. But um, being the kind of that digital broker for people to acquire deals, help underwrite deals, you know, help them obtain financing all the way through handing their keys to property management and kind of being that platform where people are staying on there. You know, is it time to refinance? Should I raise the rents? You know, and really collect a lot of data points. So I know that's a lot, but we have a big vision. So practically speaking, um, you guys still, and, and I appreciate the big vision, but YieldEasy's pretty new. Yes. Walk me through about how long you've been doing, you guys have been working on solving this problem. Yeah. So if you take it back to right kind of pre-pandemic, I was brokering these deals myself just as kind of a side hustle hobby um, and really kind of just taking the institutional experience that I had and bundling these as like well-packaged, well-underwritten, proper deals that people could enjoy to look at and browse rather than, you know, the traditional realtor posts a picture of a, of a rent roll with a cap rate and there's nothing else there. Um, and, and really kind of that's how the vision started. We bootstrapped the business. Mm -hmm. We've built it on low code to date and we're kind of, you know, aiming to get off that soon with some engineering talent, but you know, yield easy really launched, I would say about three weeks ago, uh, just in Philadelphia, cause that's where we are based. And within two weeks, we had about 50 signups from buyers. We had about a hundred signups from potential interested sellers. We've API'd, meaning we've scraped um, all aggregate on-market properties just in Philly, small multifamily. There's about a thousand properties on the site right now. Wow. And then, so then uh, practically kind of walk me through, you know, how someone uh, uses Yodizi uh, as opposed to other options that are on the market. Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of touch on the other options, right? If you were to Google duplexes for sale, right? Or apartment buildings near me. I'm going to do it right now, actually. Yeah. So t typically what you'll get is you'll get a loop net ad. I mean, let's, why don't you do that? And you actually tell me what comes up. Well, we got, uh, we got landing.cadre. I think that's how you say it. Yep. We got some Crexy yep. and then loop net number three. Yep. Not, not, uh, not, and then 10 X actually they're yep. running loop net and 10 X, uh, ads against each other. 10 X is not 
for dupe pipes. No, 10X is a, and 10X, the, the bigger thing is they're an auction platform, right? So a majority of their listings are yeah, yeah, yeah. auctions. And then Cadre. And, and then we hit finally a Zillow organic uh, listing in its Rapid City, South Dakota, duplex and triplex homes for sale. Yep. Which the, I can tell you personally, I already know the answer. There's not many of them. Yep. Um, yeah, look, I, I think that when you. Well, so we looked at a piece of data. It was really interesting in Philadelphia. Um, there's about 10,000 Google searches a month just in Philadelphia, MSA, of apartments for sale near me, duplex for sale. All of that go un, unanswered, mm. right? So these are not people that are ending up on LoopNet or Craigslist or any of these websites. These are people that I, I don't know where they end up, but they don't end up anywhere. Um, and so we're really trying to capture those people. When you look at the alternatives right now, you have Zillow, which provides no, you know, kind of financial details of any property. It's a broker listing platform. There's no kind of end-to-end vertical for financing and property management and inspections. Um, and they're just pulling the MLS, right? When you look at uh, LoopNet, it's a broker listing platform. You got to go through the pain, painstaking problem of getting a hold of the broker who's going to send you 15 different emails, you know. And, and so really we're, what we're solving for is just a better experience, right? Um, if you take a, a business that exists and tech enable it and make it better, um, there's real opportunity there. So that's that's kind of where our, our, our vision is for that. Yeah, and one of the challenges is not in every market. You talk about you know these agent uh, listing portals or basically what's syndicating directly from the MLS. Not in every market do they have to provide those financials. And Correct. you know if uh, you know, one of my one of my favorite terms for uh, and I only learned this from Twitter. Uh, and I'm thankful that I know it now because I know I committed some of the egregious crimes uh, that um, commercial agents will uh, charge residential, or as they refer to, resi-mercial agents. Uh, you know, kind of playing in a ball field that's a little bit outside of truly your expertise and or uh, your knowledge trying to be working in some of the commercial properties and the differences there. But even with just a small multifamily, you know, basic P&L, basic financials on how the building has performed, even just over the last two or three years, nothing that's out of the ordinary, but uh, having gone through that and prepping listings uh, such as that, uh, you know, I found myself a little bit overwhelmed initially, um, you know, even as now as a rookie agent, but there was only so much information I was required to input on those listings. So then, uh, how are you guys getting the data that, you know, if you're not getting the listing directly from the seller, how are you getting the data? Yeah, so uh, good question. So we have kind of a two-pronged approach for supply, right? So the, the marketplace problem is, is a problem as old as time. You got to onboard the supply side. You got to onboard the demand side. Our vision for this was really to be able to kind of get the low-hanging fruit of onboarding the supply side first. And for us, the home run was aggregating all on-market listings. You create a better UI, UX, you help people get through diligence, you help people get uh, uh, you know, through financing, and you create a better experience. At which point, you roll out the kind of yield easy direct side, where we act as, as the brokerage and have the exclusives, and there's a requirement to onboard your listing onto our platform. Number one, the value we provide is that we're 3% as opposed to the traditional 6 um, and, and in doing so, you're kind of selling yourself, you know, almost like an eBay meets MLS for apartment buildings. And there is going to be required fields, right? We want, we want a rent roll. We want a P&L. We want a proper kind of, you know, uh, most recent inspection report. All these kind of touch and data points that most buyers, you know, want to make a decision. Um, that's kind of on our rollout on, on the direct side. 
On the existing listings, the way we do that is uh, we have a few interesting partnerships that we've explored with a lot of data companies such as Cherry, Reonomy, where we can basically make one level above an educated guess of what these buildings are getting for rent, what the average expense ratio is, being able to kind of match buyers with properties that have the most data points. They can make offers contingent on these data points um, and then kind of bringing the, the realtor of that listing into the loop, right? And saying like, hey, you know, your listing looks incomplete. You know, we can have it be a yield easy featured listing and access to thousands of investors. Here's what we need from you, right? And it's almost like you're empowering the realtor uh, who didn't have this information and saying like, hey, look, we can get this sold faster, better, quicker, more efficiently all online. We just need, you know, these three points. So you're kind of like helping everyone there. Yeah, I mean, and obviously that's some of the things that, uh, you know, when you're doing it a little bit of a different scale, working directly with the data providers and then making that data a little bit more accessible. You know, this past week I had a lot of conversations with other prop tech vendors uh, that were attending IMN Miami. I know I may be dating this episode a little bit with that, but, you know, bear with me. And one of the things I had uh, are good discussions I have with another data provider, which I'll allow to remain nameless here but a good reputable company is that they admitted that many times they have conversations with people from the industry who are interested in the data. They kind of get this deer in the headlights look. They're overwhelmed with the choices of what data is most helpful and where do they go. And you know they, they don't have experience in breaking things down and deciphering. So what's the process you're going through of like, hey, this is really the most important data that we have to get to the end user because... There's no end in sight of metrics and vanity things that you could be reporting on that generally won't move the needle. But, you know, it'd be cool. It's there. You make some dashboards. So how are you picking what to serve up? So I think obviously first and foremost is, you know, people price real estate based on what it throws off. So your top level of kind of importance is going to be, you know, your income, what are you getting in rents? And then secondly, what are your expenses, right? A lot you can infer from public record, taxes, insurance, right? A lot of a lot of these are kind of commoditized. But as we kind of roll out, as you said, dashboards, being able to kind of give people the data at their fingertips of, hey, you know, here's how much rent growth has happened in this market. Here's how much new development's happening here and here's what's driving rent growth, you know, and here are interest rates basically give these people a, I don't want to say the word estimate, but kind of a proprietary algorithm with ideal time to refinance, ideal price to pay, where if you go on a lot of these car websites, car gurus, it's like, you know, you have good deal, bad deal. That's based on what? It's based on millions of little data points of comps, what cars have sold, right? And so I agree with you on, on what you just said about kind of the existing data is pretty much like the kitchen sink, right? Like, Sure, the school rating is great, the walk score is great, and all these other kind of things. But a lot of what we're just trying to solve for is an inefficiency that exists because the current way of transactions is thirty years old. Got it. Got it. Yeah, and I appreciate you going into that that detail there. Now, you guys are as a young company here, uh, only recently coming out of stealth. I know it's still in a, a pre-revenue stage, and uh, you know. A toy to you know normal here is like the path towards building a, a big company but as you move forward how do you view the relationship or maybe um, the difference between the user and the customer and if that hasn't been determined yet you know certainly um, feel free to you know let me know that as well 
Yeah. So if I'm if I'm understanding the question correctly, it's um, you know we we kind of have looked at the entire gamut of who who is our user, right? We actually have a internal five page document of target audience demographics, who these people are, and when we were in the process of building this, we've interviewed close to a hundred people, everybody from the first time, you know, home investor all the way through managing directors at publicly traded REITs. And the general consensus we've got is that this market that we're trying to disrupt, this small multifamily market, is kind of the last to get institutionalized, which is super interesting because a lot of people that I talk to, they say, you know, why have the SFR guys not done this? Why, why, you know, what what makes you special, right? Like why you? So I think the way that these businesses and how, where VC funding goes and where consumers go, a lot of it tends to kind of tail institutions. And if you look at what's happened institutionally from 2008 onward, and you know now Blackstone, BlackRock will go buy a portfolio of 5,000 homes, right? And then all of a sudden there's a new SFR marketplace getting funded you know, once a month at this point. We kind of see this as the missing middle where we think a big part of our um, early customers are going to be kind of that bigger pockets crowd, people who are just getting into real estate, you know, small mom and pop lawyers, doctors. But at some point, there is an institutional unlock, right? And and I think that's what a lot of these institutions are, are looking for is how, how you can buy these things efficiently. Because when an institution goes and buys 5,000 homes, and let's just assume 8% of them are kind of bad debt slash write-off because they overpaid or whatever, it's a lot easier because you can much more easily commoditize a single home. It's a lot harder to do when you have different units. And I think as we kind of unlock inventory, because a lot of what goes into the $60 billion market mm -hmm. is um, listed and uh, transacted on properties that are on market. But the numbers don't add up because this market size is, accounts for 53% of all the apartment buildings in the, in the country. So there is a significant amount of these that trade off market that don't get captured under this kind of data set that if you can unlock this for an, on an institutional level and somebody like a pension fund can go buy a 10 unit apartment building and run it as efficiently as they can buy a thousand homes, you know, that for us is a massive unlock. And I'm cautious when I say that because I, I know what it sounds like when somebody tells you that, well, everyone is our customer, right? Um, but, you know, we, we're building this for the lawyers, doctors, tech executives, people who want to buy real estate, the mom and pops, small landlord businesses who are, this is their bread and butter and they hate the process. But what I kind of referenced is that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And speaking of that, I know you, so you're only in Philly at the moment and that's where your focus, where do you see yourself expanding to next? Yeah, so we're in Philly, but actually in one month, I, again, I don't want to give the start date for the purpose of the video, but actually in a month, we are opening an office space or getting into an office space in New York City. We got accepted to a pretty well-known accelerator program. Um, so we're, we're really excited about that. So yeah, I, should, I probably should have started with that. <laughs> it's pretty. Can you say who? Uh, yeah, it's ERA, um, Entrepreneur's Roundtable Accelerator, backed by Remarkable Ventures. So they've done a couple Congrats. big... Thank you very much. It was, uh, we were very thrilled to be accepted there. So that starts in a month. It's going to be the summer program. Uh, they've done some brilliant deals. Uh, Fund That Flip is a big one. Uh, Butler Hospitality, Felix Gray, um, Square Foot. So they've done a lot of, of kind of businesses in, in, the, in the arena. So, you know, for us, kind of just going back to your uh, question, we looked at some of the top 10 data sets on 
uh, who kind of controls this space and it's in our deck, but you know, St. Louis is a big one. Boston is a big one, LA, Miami, um, Houston. A lot of it has to do with zoning laws. A lot of it has to do with density laws where when these apartment buildings in the seventies and eighties were built. And, you know, if you drive through LA, right in Santa Monica, because of the earthquakes, for example, I was just talking to somebody, it's like, this is every other apartment building. Cause you, there's no density. And up until recently, there was no high rises. So every apartment building there is, is a tiny walk up, right? If you, you know, look at Philadelphia as a test case, uh, you know, markets like Fairmount, Northern Liberties, Fishtown. I mean, every, every single- Every imaginable type looking triplex you can configure. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that, you know, yeah. that really for us was, you know, kind of part of the, part of the light bulb that went off. It was like, but yeah, yeah I mean, geographic expansion, like New York is very exciting for us. Maybe not New York, Manhattan proper, but a lot of these outskirts, Queens, Staten Island, um, Brooklyn, where a lot of these small multifamily properties exist. And, you know, we've got some feedback from guys that are there and same kind of excitement. Yeah, you know, and don't mind me just inserting my two cents here, but why not take on like Allentown, Reading, Harrisburg, Pittsburgh and get some network effects across Pennsylvania? Yeah, no, certainly... Um, to be honest, we've we've gone down the route of, of let's kind of stay in the suburbs, and I think that that's somewhere that we want to be prevalent, just because every problem <clears throat> every problem that we've talked about thus far is that much more exponentially worse in these areas. Um, for what reason I don't know, but when you when you when you look at kind of suburban real estate deals on a smaller level, um, the marketing efficacy of real estate businesses goes down, the uh, underwriting abilities of the agents go down. Um, and this is this is proven. This is all kind of data that we've pulled. Um, so it, it actually hurts sellers because people are paying less for properties that are actually worth more, and the sellers aren't able to obtain more because they don't have the tools, resources, and everything else they need. So, so that that is to some degree is a is like a market opportunity for you guys because, and maybe this is oversimplifying, but if the talent of the agents in those areas isn't helping sellers achieve what they should be or, or could be. With their properties then this is where you guys can really help solve and make up some of that difference yeah exactly and and look like to just to hunker down on this point it's like we see ourselves as the agent's best friend right because we're yeah, aggregating totally. these listings and we're acting as the buying agent we're giving the seller agent free press free marketability you know the deal's going no matter what goes through them we're cooperating with them we've talked about kind of incentive programs of taking less on the buy side um assisting assisting buyers uh, with part of the fee, helping kind of promote seller agent fees. So, you know, people have asked me, do we want to be the Uber to the taxi world? And my answer is like, absolutely not. Like we want to be the DoorDash to restaurants, right? Like we want to actually empower these people because yeah. yeah. we think that helps everybody. Yeah. Speaking on the money side. So um, where is, uh, where does money come in at here? I mean, is there like a referral fee on closing? I'm assuming you have set up a, an established brokerage that gives you the right to advertise properties yep. and uh so mm -hmm. what's the model is it selling leads referrals yeah so we have a on on the marketplace side we we are a tech enabled brokerage similar to a lot of these other kind of marketplaces that establish themselves as brokerages in whatever geography they operate in so any state that we're going to be active in it's going to have to be a brokerage whether it's through a jv structure or launching our own um so our, our direct listing place fee a direct marketplace listing fee is 3% if and when you sell. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a lot more economically favorable to sellers. 
And then any deal that we aggregate and, and kind of pull from the market, um, and you, you know, if you were, for example, to go on my site and buy a triplex in Miami when we're live there, and that's a, a listing that we've pulled through, um, we would represent you as the buying agent. We get paid the half of their typical 6% fee that the seller agent is paying. So we make 3% there. Where it gets interesting is kind of the ancillary um, kind of network of channel partners, financing, right? So think of financing the way you would eBay and PayPal. Um, we've had plenty of conversations with tech-enabled lenders to kind of have an exclusive relationship where you buy on our platform, you finance right on the platform. So we're getting a you know piece of the loan origination fee. We're helping you with diligence. We're getting a referral fee on the inspection report. We're helping you with property management. Our idea there for a more kind of predictable revenue stream to the company is actually partnership-based rather than mm -hmm. referral-based. Um, you know, we establish ourselves as a partner with the top three managers in the area. You know, we get a constant, constant piece of revenue. So the fees, it's really interesting. Start to, you know, we're, we're cutting out the fee for the buyer and the seller. So nobody feels it there, but the traditional, you know, market or it's traditional real estate fee of 6%, we actually, as a company start to tend up towards like six, seven, eight percent Um, after you kind of include all ancillary referral fees and, and profit share and stuff like that. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, obviously that I'm, I expected to hear and see how you guys do as you grow and develop the platform and uh, see where that model uh, takes you there. Um, I want to shift a little bit here and just kind of talk about growth. I mean, we talked about product and model here, but uh, you know, rubber meets the road, right? Things have got to, go so what's been working for you guys uh, you know especially in such an early stage a very competitive uh product to try and build and carve out space for yourselves so talk me through what's been driving early growth yeah um you know i think number one stuff like this like literally being on a podcast with you guys just natural uh you know nate nate getting us uh, us out there but in all seriousness, we've we've had a really. I don't good... know if I'm bringing any buyers. You know, I'm just gonna put it out there. Like, but if any prop tech founders out there is trying to you know do a little partnership or things like that, then go ahead and use my uh, exclusive code. Yeah, get twenty percent off when when you yeah get twenty percent off. Yeah, um, in terms of kind of the user side, right? I think partnerships is going to be massive for us, and I think as we kind of explore other brokerage partnerships, we had a, a conversation um, that's kind of still in play to be transparent in, with a kind of a large institutional investment sales company. Um, the idea is for them to come in as a strategic partner, unlock a lot of their buyer and seller side that is just frankly too small for them to deal with. These are guys that sell yeah. $15 million plus properties, yet everybody in the city knows who they are and everybody wants a piece of them. And the way we kind of pitched them was like, look, you know, take, uh, I'm sure you have plenty of car guys and that listen to this. You take BMW, right? So they have their flagship seven series model. That's what everybody wants. And, but not everybody can afford it. Right. So they come out with a three series and it's every other car you see on the road. And we really kind of see ourselves as that plug in to a lot of these institutional brokerages, um, who we end up landing with TBD. But I think kind of crucial to growth is going to be a lot of partnership related, uh, relationships. And, you know, as, as we kind of continue to get network effect and flywheel effect, 
just by really just naturally creating a better buying experience, right? Like I said, like our low hanging fruit first step is really aggregating all the listings in every geography we go to and just creating a better buying process. You buy through us, we help yeah. you get financing, you know, we help you identify a manager. And this is a space that from every, you know, angle and every person we've talked to, they're frustrated with the process and there's nothing like a customer referral. So that that's a big one for us. We've done some cool out of out of home advertising. We've got a couple cool billboards in Philly, a couple cool bike stalls that have helped. Uh, Google Ads obviously is a big no one. No way! You went straight to out of home. Yes, we did. Yes, we versus, did. Super uh, hard in the. Does, I mean, you're running Google Ads, but uh, that's that's what we got to pause there. I can't let you run past that. Why would you go straight to out of home? The, what notoriously. One of the most difficult channels to track back and definitively measure your ROI on, and especially as you're so early in your model. Yeah. So look, obviously there is no portal when you have a billboard up that tells you engagement, click-throughs, right? What it does do is, uh, and I, I'll send you a couple of pictures of the billboards and the stalls, right? It's so just obscure and it just says, you know, hassle-free apartment investing with our logo. Nothing else is there. Our website's not there. Uh, our phone number is not there. It's just our logo, a cute little apartment building. And it says hassle-free apartment investing. Um, what we've seen is from the time it went live, we saw about a 18% week over week click-through on Google. But people just searching for our business and finding us on Google. It's obviously highly concentrated in, in, in the region. Uh, we have a pretty good spot in Philadelphia. We got a couple of cool stalls right outside of 30th Street Station. We got one right in kind of the business district. So those all kind of went live at the same time. And it's like, if you look at the chart, like on our Google ads and, and click throughs, it's like, it looks like a spaceship. Uh, I'm very interested and intrigued to see this. Um, I hope you'll teach me something here because out of home is not a specialty of mine. And uh, truth be told, you know, because it doesn't have a click through uh, dashboard and a few other things to it, I've generally avoided it. Uh, but I can understand in a, in a crowded uh, industry where you really have to cut through some noise and try and get through to it, putting yourself in a channel that's generally designed to capture demand sometimes may not be the best strategy. So I appreciate that little out of the box thinking here. Let me ask you this. This might be a little bit of a challenge to you guys. You know, I've had this debate with a few people about the access to investing more broadly, everything is accessible. The easier it is to buy, the faster you can buy, ultimately may lead to higher prices. That's that's a you know theory I've thought through, and so I want to I want to ask you: Will tech and access to investment properties increase the prices? Um, you know, as it becomes more accessible and easy uh, easy to purchase, or will there? be a net negative or, or, or net, net zero effect on prices and certainly why? So this is a, this is a good question for me because I always argue with people about the future viability of fractional real estate investing and buy real estate with $5 a share, which is to be clear, we're not doing it all. Right. Right. You know, I, I think if you look at what Robin hood did to the stock market and finance community as a whole, you know, I think a most companies that are publicly traded are still going to trade on fundamentals. There's still an equilibrium. A lot of it still has to do with, you know, investment banks and, and institutional holdings. But you you see what happened with meme stocks, right? Like you see what happened with GameStop and Reddit. And that, frankly, is a power of the people right. having accessibility. 
right to you know as of this date in 2022 you can't trade real estate like stocks maybe there's people working on startups for that but um you know i i think the business that we are in specifically it's still a capital intensive business right and i bought my first property yeah. when i was yeah. 27 years old wanting to buy one since i was 19 right because for all those years it was like work save money become a broker try to get commissions try to you know and that's why the traditional real estate investor is of a certain demographic, right? Um, my little brother is 21 years old. He is a stock market investor, quote unquote, because he's got a, a Robinhood account. He's got money in stocks. Is he going to be a real estate investor tomorrow? By proxy, if they're, you know, a lot of these fractional apps, sure. But I think in terms of direct, it's still going to be very much based on uh, liquidity, capital availability, um, you know, ease of financing. So... I guess to answer your question more directly, I think it's going to be a while before we see kind of like some massive price hike due to accessibility in real estate yeah. directly. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, obviously this is something that we have yet to be yet to be seen or yet to be uh, uh, charted in a way that demonstrates that so many factors that have been uh, dictating price as well as uh, actual cost, you know, in the last few years. Uh, and so, um Yep, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how things pencil out. I'm gonna go ahead and shift in as we come into the bottom of the show here to my favorite segment of the show, known as For the Future. For the Future is a segment where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Jeff, are you ready to play? Let's go. All right, let's do this. Question number one: What does Yield Easy look like one year from now? So I think Yield Easy one year from now is. Um... A lot more accessible, um, a lot more of a household name in the kind of bigger pockets, early real estate investing community. Um, we see ourselves as having a team of transaction coordinators, customer success managers, business development people who can really go out there, obtain quality listings. Um, and, and as a company that's helping sellers, you know, get top dollar while spending less, helping investors access better deals and doing it more efficiently. All right. Question number two. And this is a good one. I think it's a good one, at least. Where do cap rates go from here now that we're seeing the cost of capital increase? Oh, boy. So I just talked to somebody, and I actually read this on Twitter. was like, uh, the real estate market is the weirdest it's ever been, right? And I, I, you know, I, I think it's like goes against every textbook teaching. I've read Peter Lindemann's textbook cover to cover. Um, What's going on right now is just weird, right? There's a there's a shortage of housing. Cap rates are still being compressed. Interest rates are there's a shortage of housing in places people want to live. Correct, but not don't want to live. Yes, I that's that's also true. But it's such a full question. I'm trying to answer it perfectly. It's um, number one. I don't know because I'm not a professional. But my best guess is that as the state of the world that we're in right now comes to a, a, a head, right? You have this new monkeypox pandemic. You have 6% interest rates. You have a uh, war in Russia and Ukraine, um, potential food shortage. Who knows what, like what, what, you know, maybe an asteroid hits next, but I think where cap rates are going to go is still going to be mostly based off supply and demand. Um, I think some fundamental kind of institutional players are going to adjust deals and, and, and kind of bid bids based on, cost of capital, because for a lot of these players, it's a cap rate game, right? It's just the spread between the cap rate and the interest rate. 
for our side of the business, what we've seen typically happen through cycles is a lot of these smaller investors aren't really as affected by the macro, right? So a you know person who's buying a 500 unit deal doesn't really act the same way as a person who's buying a triplex because if they're driving down their street five minutes away and there's a triplex and it's a local seller, they're not taking into account like what is going on with the CMBS markets that day or so I think it's kind of on, on two sides on, on the larger side, I think prices will have to come down eventually sure. um, just as interest rates go up and depends what the federal reserve continues to do. And on the, on the smaller side, I think people are just going to act according based on affordability. If people can continue to pay the rents and landlords can continue to make uh, payments or buy them in all cash, because a lot of them can because they're smaller size deals, they don't really act in accordance to cap rates and, and interest rates, right? That was a long-winded answer. That's okay. Question number three, what's one industry trend you think will continue but you wish would go away? Um, I would have to say... I think I, I, I just think the fractional ownership stuff and it, a lot of people are going to give me hate for this. And I'm sure a lot of your guests are, are founders and I, and I wish them nothing but success. But when people ask us why we don't want to get into this business, the customer acquisition is increasingly high. It's very hard to have a sticky platform because a lot of them are trying to do the same thing now. And the problem is when you put yourself in the mm -hmm. shoes of a consumer like you or I or you know, anybody else who has $5,000 or 2,500 bucks and they want to invest it, they're going to put it in Robinhood and they're going to buy Tesla because they just watched their friend triple their money. They don't want to, they don't want to buy a 4% coupon SFR deal that's split between, you know, 250 guys. So I, that, that's, that's one thing. All right. Last one here uh, for the future. What's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? <sighs> So I think a lot of it is going to be the for sale by owner. I think so much of what's happening in tech is favoring consumers on, on the seller side. Sellers are getting more empowered than they've ever been. Sellers have more options that they've ever had. And so I think people putting a sign on their front lawn and selling their property on, on Craigslist is, is, is not going to be a thing. I think exuberant pricing on um, brokerages is, is going to come to a head at some point. Um, and all these kind of traditional, you know, 30 year old business practices that own the whole real estate world will slowly start to get phased out. I mean, you see, there's been record prop tech funding, and I think there's a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs solving for the issues that are, you know, paying everybody in real estate. Yeah. All right. We're going to move into the last three. These questions are about you. So the audience gets to know you a little bit better. First one here, what are you reading? So the last book I read for the second time is The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, mm -hmm. um, which is weird because I'm, I'm a real estate guy, but <clears throat> I'm a big follower of Warren Buffett. And when the world goes crazy, I just tend to watch YouTube videos of him explaining concepts like he would to a fifth grader. Um, another one I've, I've read is uh, Charlie's Almanac, which is his business partner, Charlie Munger. Um, that is a book I recommend for everybody. Question number two, who are you learning from? Believe it or not, Twitter has been like my university. Um, but on a more serious note, I think it's, it's really kind of tomorrow's prop tech founders, right? Like we look up to a lot of these people who have solved for these issues. Um, a lot of these companies who we emulate. Um, 
a lot of these founders that are, are solving tomorrow's complex problems is, is really who we kind of go to and learn from. And then there's the kind of life lessons. Um, friends, family, fiance tends to ground me a lot um, and put a lot of things into perspective. So kind of have the, the micro and the macro there. All right. And the last of the last three, what inspires you? Probably my parents. Um, I mentioned earlier, come from an immigrant family. Um, so it's a, it's, it's just a chip on your shoulder that is so innate and just can't be taught. It's kind of proving people wrong in a way. Um, that's mm. kind of the best revenge I like to say. Right. And so when we started this journey months ago, it was, you know, I'm a first time founder, um, despite my little ventures I had in, in my college years, but it, you know, I, I think it's just the, the journey, um, of falling flat on your face 15 times a day and not giving up. And you kind of like get addicted to that feeling of like, uh, you know, there's 10 reasons today why I should stop doing this. And I don't have a single ounce of doubt in my mind that I'm going to continue. Yeah. That's also a little bit of Philly too. So, you know, that kind of works out. I think, yep. uh, those, those who are from the area know and understand that, that grit that is just born in you. I, I might chalk it up, just say, it's, hey, man, it's the Schuylkill. Uh, it if could you, be. If, you, if only the Sixers. If you're drinking the Schuylkill River Punch, you know what I mean? That yeah. that just might be it. Yeah, you kind of become like the radioactive Hulk. Unstoppable. But <laughs> if um, if the Sixers could uh, continue that mantra you know, this season, that would have been great. But they got far, they got far enough. Uh, I'm going to withhold my comments on Philly sports teams and I'll just allow history to speak for itself. Jeff, this has been awesome. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for going into all the details. I know we covered a lot of ground and excited for you guys. I know you're so early on in this journey, but a big vision, a lot of uh, big things ahead for y'all. Uh, before we close out the show, for those who want to get in touch with you to learn more about Yield Easy, where do they go and how do they do that? Uh, we are on every social platform. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. Um, our website is yieldeasy.com. My email is jeff, J-E-F-F, at yieldeasy.com. Would love to talk to anybody in the space um, about anything. So, Awesome. Well, we'll catch you around. And uh, next time I'm up, well, I don't really actually get to Philly too often, but if I do get to Philly, we got to link up. Well, I got I to gotta come hike with you. All right. Let's make that happen. Thank you so much, Nate. You're the man. Well, thanks for listening to the Tech Nest podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right in your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great worthy listen. We'll see you next week.